0: Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at 7 Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today you are in for a special treat. If you're interested in what it means to be a growth investor, how to spot investment trends that will provide some of the market's best returns in the coming years, If there are parallels between today's post COVID 19 environment and economic crises of the recent past, and how fast growing tech stocks that at first glance appear to be overly valued, but might in reality be undervalued, then you will want to pay special attention today. Joining us for what I believe will be an enlightening conversation is Peru Sucena. In a past life, Peru was an accomplished money manager out of Hong Kong. He sold out of his asset management business a few years ago and now just manages his own portfolio, tweeting about it every step of the way. He is now one of the most followed, most prolific, and most transparent investors on Twitter, where he can be found at Saxena Peru, underscore Peru. That's at S-A-X-E-N-A underscore Peru, P-U-R-U. He is a great investor, and I am honored to call him a friend. Peru, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you for the kind introduction.
0: Of course. Uh, Peru, you know, one of the, you got your start investing in the late 1990s, uh, Mm -hmm. making you far more experienced than most of us currently in the financial world, myself included. Uh, So I'd like to start by like tapping that experience. Uh, Since you got to live and invest through both the tech bubble in 2000 and the great financial crisis in 08 and 09, Uh, Let's just start our conversation uh, there by looking back at the 2000 bubble. What was young Peru doing at that time? And how did you fare, and and what did you learn investing through that?
1: Well, I just started my career in uh, 1998, Matt. I started working as a futures trader for commodity futures and Hang Seng Index futures in Hong Kong. Um, And a year later, I switched over to asset management. So I started managing money for investors. And I still remember vividly, you know, those days, anything related to technology was just going higher and higher. Some of the stocks had gone up four, five, six fold uh, in a year. Uh, Companies were changing their names to uh, dot com. So they would just add the word dot com after the name. And then they would say, well, we are entering the technology business And lo and behold, investors all over the world would just pile into those companies. So it was sheer insanity. And there was a lot of uh, exuberance and euphoria back then. And, um, you know, people were convinced that the internet was gonna change the world. Well, the internet did change the world. The problem is that the valuations had run up so far ahead of the business fundamentals. And so many companies didn't even have any business plans or revenues, companies used to go higher and be valued on, uh, based on eyeballs in those days. And uh, it was just the wild, wild west and stocks had gone parabolic. You know, The charts were very obvious. If you looked at you know, the weekly charts at that time, and I remember looking at a few uh, in those days, they had gone up like that at a 90, almost 85, 90 degree angle. And they'd just gone higher and higher. And I still remember talking to my Boss at that time uh, at Richmond Asset Management, my managing director, saying, "Look, Graham, this doesn't seem right to me. You know, how come these charts have done this for years, and then suddenly they've gone like that? And history shows that this doesn't end well." And he said, "No, what do you know? You're just a kid in your early 20s. You know, this is the new era. This is the TMT. This is a revolution, and you just have to buy." Unfortunately for me, I did not listen to him. I realized that something was a mess so I basically bailed out of all technology stocks uh, more because of good luck rather than anything else because I was fortunate enough at that time to actually read some of the writings from the more experienced and sensible players in the industry and they were convinced that this was going to implode and I thought you know if something has gone up four five six fold in a year or 18 months uh, obviously a lot of the good news is already baked in the price so I bailed out all my clients cash from the tech sector, from equities in general, I went short the SP. I bought gold, precious metals, and a few market neutral hedge funds, which did reasonably well over the next two or three years. So that was my start in this business. And I recall investors basically coming over to see me in my office at that time saying, you know, we are getting killed. Our account is down 50, 60, 70%. And here we were, you know, making money in this period. And that's how I kind of built my reputation in the business.
0: That's great. And what would be like, so like you're still a young investor at the time, but obviously that was like a, uh, you know, a, a huge like experience to go through. Like what was your like takeaway lesson from all that? Like how, how does that, no, how does that like a still, how does that still affect your investing today?
1: I mean, when I see rich valuations, and I'm, I mean, super rich valuations, it makes me very uh, nervous and uneasy because I've seen this movie before. You know, when things are good, uh, Matt, you know, things can stay inflated and overextended for a long period of time. And I've seen that now, you know, in, late, uh, ni- in the late 90s, and say, for example, in 1999, nobody would have imagined that tech stocks would go four five six four five, six fold in 12 to 18 months, but they did. So the key takeaway for me is that you know bubbles can get bigger and they can get way bigger and they can stay inflated for as long as the bartender keeps providing a drug, i.e. the Fed providing newly created dollars. You know, If you see what is happening uh, in the world today, because of COVID, a lot of the central banks are just printing money like there is no tomorrow. They've dropped rates to zero. So you have a zero interest rate policy throughout the developed world. And on top of that, you've got central banks basically printing cash to try and stave off uh, a big credit crunch or a credit default or bust. So they are doing what they perceive as the right thing. And inadvertently this cash is being channeled into financial assets, namely those companies which are beneficiaries of this uh, problem, uh, i.e. COVID. So a very few select number of companies are actually benefiting somewhat what is going on in the world today. And most of the companies and industries are actually struggling. So a lot of the investor cash is basically piling into these strong names because if you're a fund manager, or if you're a mutual fund manager, pension fund manager, hedge fund manager, and if your mandate says that you must remain invested in equities at all times, and if you want to preserve your capital, and if you want to show some returns to your investors, you're not going to want to own own banks. You're not going to want to own uh, restaurants, hotels, and all the beaten down cyclicals, which are really struggling in this environment, you're going to want to own some of the strong companies which are still exhibiting strong revenue growth and providing strong guidance. And that's what we are seeing, you know, it's a very narrow door and you have a lot of liquidity being funneled through that door into these select companies. And as long as the Fed and the other central banks continue to uh, you know, keep their foot pressed to the uh, metal, if you will, I suspect that uh, these technology companies are going to stay strong, and the next big problem will arise either when we get a, a vaccine which proves to be both, uh, you know, good and efficacious and also safe. Until then, I think these uh, tech stocks are going to keep uh, being sort of lift or bid up because of their, you know, safe haven, our newly found safe haven status in this environment. Oh,
0: that's 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 interesting. I want to revisit that in one second, but before we do uh, talk us through your experience in 08 and 09 also, because like, uh, you know, the tech bubble was 20 years ago, but, but 08, 09 now is still over a decade uh, in the past and many investors uh, weren't investing then either. Uh, Tell us your, your experience going through that.
1: Well, that was a very different experience because I was one of the unlucky ones who got everything right from a macro perspective, but then lost a lot of money because I bet wrong. So I knew that housing in the US was uh, in a a big bubble. I had written about it for a couple of years. I knew that the Western world was, uh, you know, in a very precarious situation because a huge buildup of debt at the household level. So I was warning uh, my investors and, uh, and anybody else who cared to listen to what I had to say that Housing was a rubble and this was going to end very badly. Where I got it wrong, I thought that commodities would somehow remain insulated from uh, the calamity which I basically foresaw on the horizon. So I was basically heavily invested in commodities, gold and stuff, and I was also long the emerging markets because I was under the uh, false sort of belief or I was mistaken and thinking that, you know, these sectors and pockets of strength would remain insulated and isolated from what was about to happen in the Western world. And as we know, you know, once you had a couple of bankruptcies on Wall Street, everything imploded because there was a massive margin call on risk assets all over the world and everything, regardless of fundamentals was basically sold, which is what happened in March this year to some extent, but that collapse was actually worse because the s fell over 50% and banks went down 80 or 90%. So that was a systemic crisis and that was a big lesson for me because it is very easy in this business matter to put on like a uh, blinders you know blinkers like a horse does and you have a tunnel vision and you think you know whatever i'm thinking is right but it is very important now for me at least to basically keep an open mind and try and you know see where i could go wrong what i am missing so now even though i have done my homework or i do my homework extensively I'm always on the lookout for factors which could basically prove me totally wrong. And because now my portfolio is very concentrated in software, FinTech and e-commerce and stuff. And you know, although I'm pretty um, sanguine about the long-term prospects, I am getting a bit nervous about the froth that we are beginning to see in these areas, especially, you know, companies like Shopify, which are now trading as ridiculous valuations and i know it's a great business and it's got a great management team and so forth but when i invested into shopify for example in early april after the crash i never imagined in a million years that this stock would more than triple in three months you know this is not normal and that's the key takeaway i would like your listeners and subscribers to basically get from today's uh you know chat is that trees don't grow to the heavens and when they do they they, you know you do get an abrupt reversal i'm not smart enough to tell you when it's going to happen but i do know that if investing was so easy that anybody could just buy any stock at any inflated price everybody would be rich but obviously reality is very different
0: uh yeah absolutely you know there's absolute so getting ready for this show I, i was doing a little homework and and uh and let me, let me read to you something you wrote over a decade ago, and it's so true, and this was before the housing crisis. You said, the eternal truth in the investment world is that every asset class goes through boom and bust cycles, which typically last for several years. However, it is ironic that toward the end of any bull market, when the risk is extreme, optimism toward the booming asset class is usually at a record high. On the other hand, during the final phase of a bear market, when the downside risk is limited, the asset that is selling at a huge discount is always neglected and hated by the public. The reason for this irrational behavior is that most people find it hard to foresee and accept change. The conditions that have been prevalent for a long time are considered to be permanent and investment decisions are made accordingly. Uh, You know, and you're writing about U.S. housing at that time, but You know, you could make an argument like you're just saying about Shopify and probably some other cloud and software names, like kind of fit that description of a booming asset class today uh, with optimism at a quote unquote record high.
1: I agree with you. I think this is an incipient bubble. It's not going to end well. You know, I don't know the timing of it all. It could be a vaccine. It could be the central bank abruptly, you know, stopping quantitative easing. It could be the Fed saying, you know, enough is enough. Inflation is creeping up going to raise rates uh, you are not going to get a tripling of these stocks over the next three months i can assure you that you know you're right. not even going to get a tripling of these stocks over the next two or three years i'm pretty confident of that you know what has happened in the past is not necessarily you know a guarantee or, or a guidance of what's likely to happen in the future you know you remember the old adage in the investment world past performance is no guarantee of future returns and, you know, when you pull forward all the returns in you know in today's market cap from these companies, you can only get so big, you know, for example, now Shopify is trading at what, 60 times uh, revenue or 50, 60 times yeah. revenue? 60 times mm-hmm. sales, yeah. Yeah, I mean a company which is basically generating almost $2 billion in revenue, which basically is a loss making enterprise and his market cap has been bid up to $120 billion with a B, you know, so, at some point, you have to recognize that this is not uh, rational. This is not normally. either. How long is it going to take for Shopify to actually, you know, grow into its uh, valuation? I could argue and make a very good case that investors who are, you know, own Shopify stock today, maybe even flat, four or five years from now. You know, sure, you could go higher in the near term, but eventually, you're going to get a big pull, off, a pullback, or a sell-off. So I don't think you want to make much money owning this. So the risk reward, at least from my point of view, and I could be totally wrong, is not very favorable for a company which is trading at such a rich valuation. Some of the other cloud stocks also are fairly uh, richly valued or very richly valued, but their revenue growth rates are a lot higher. You know, if you look at CrowdStrike, you look at Datadog, these companies are growing at 80, 90% a year. Their gross margins are higher. You know, their unit economics are better than Shopify and also the deal with uh, mainly, you know, enterprise grade customers. And I would say that they are less risky to a sort of a slowdown in the economy. And I think that Shopify is probably more cyclical and more vulnerable because it has got such a large exposure to the SME space.
0: Right, right. So how, how, how does valuation fit into your process? Because obviously I think you and I, we have uh, similar investing processes Uh, You know, even Warren Buffett, you know, probably the greatest investor ever, but known more as a value investor, has said it's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. So, obviously, growth and quality is integral to even Buffett's process. um, But you can't ignore valuations either. So, how important is valuation to your process? And how do you weigh a company's valuation to its growth and economic moat when studying it?
1: Well, my uh, objective or the minimum that I try and target for a new investment, Matt, is a compounded annual return of about 15%. So that is my sort of hurdle rate. So when I look at a business and I see, or I make projections of its growth over the next four or five years, and that's about as far as I go, because I think anything above that is kind of, you just making guesses. Uh, so I think I look at what the business will generate in terms of revenue and margins and so forth for five years out based on what all the analysts are saying and what the company has done in the past, based on management's commentary. I look at what the margins are gonna be, what the cash flows are gonna be. And then I try and slap what I consider a reasonable multiple uh, on that figure five years out. And then I look at the current market cap, make a bit of adjustment for share dilution, obviously based on um, stock-based compensation and then I figure out whether I can achieve 15% annualized. So if it's a 15% annualized return, which I think uh, I can achieve with fairly rational assumptions, then that kind of gets my interest. If I can sort of think that I can make closer to 20% annualized, then I get pretty excited. And if anything is sort of in single digits, no matter how great a business, I just uh, don't pull the trigger.
0: Gotcha. All right. so as long as you believe you can get 15% returns every year, you're, you'll, you'll stay with the investment.
1: Correct, yeah. I mean, if I am in a business, for example, and if I see that um, if a business has run up too much and if I still think that I can generate, you know, and say, for example, if I bought a company uh, like the Trade Desk in early April, which I did, and it's almost uh, gone up two and a half fold since then. So I've made 150% return, which is absurd but I still think that I can uh, generate a double digit return annualized over the next few years. So I'm happy to own that. But, you know, in the case of Shopify, I can make a pretty good case that, you know, the returns over the next four or five years might be flat from Shopify, no matter how optimistic I get about the company and how bullish I become, I just fail to see how Shopify's market cap in a sane world is going to be greater than 140, 150 billion dollars five years out. So we're already at 120 now. So it's a case of me whether you know, it's a case of me either staying with the business and accepting that this chunk of my portfolio is going to pretty much do nothing over the next four or five years, or if I can spot a better opportunity, I say thank you very much, Shopify. I've made my money. I've tripled my cash, and I'll go and look uh, elsewhere to try and compound my cash. You know, my goal mat is not to generate multi-baggers on individual stocks. But my goal is to basically generate the highest possible CAGR on my total portfolio.
0: Right, right. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, let, let's talk about selling then, uh, since we're kind of already on that subject. Like, uh, I know that you, you like me, we, we, we buy stocks with the intentions of holding them for a long-term, decades um but it you know a lot of times it doesn't work out like that uh it's a brutally competitive world out there and sometimes selling is the right thing to do like how how do you know when you're looking at your portfolio how do you know when to sell a holding or uh when to hold and be patient with it
1: well i look at each company sort of almost on an ongoing basis and i'm always on the lookout for new ideas because one thing I've realized over the years is that a lot of investors get married to their companies. They feel great joy and pride in being a loyal shareholder of company X or company Y, or oh, I've owned this stock for 10 years or I've owned this for 20 years. Who cares? You know, what matters at the end of the day is what you have achieved in terms of your annual compounded return from any given investment, or more importantly, on your total portfolio. So. Although I try and stay loyal to the companies, if something has really shot up, and again, this comes down to experience, uh, going, living through the TMT bubble, and also, you know, going through the housing bus, where I basically had a big drawdown in 2008, 2009, uh, that I look at my existing companies and I compare them with what I might be able to achieve from companies which I don't own, and I keep a specific sort of interest or keep a close eye on the new IPOs which are coming because my experience says that the new IPOs, these are disruptive groundbreaking companies uh, which are growing rapidly, they produce the best returns for investors during the first sort of seven or eight years of their life cycle as a listed company. So I'm always looking out for new opportunities. And if I feel that a business is sound and you know I can still Generate a double-digit return going forward no matter how much a stock has run up. I try and stay with it But if I feel that a company has become weak or I made a mistake with the business or its future doesn't Look as good as you know It's past, and the market hasn't really caught on to that then I'm very quickly to dump companies I don't really care. You know what my turnover is My only interest is to make sure that I'm positioning the best companies going forward
0: Gotcha, gotcha uh, let's shift gears a little bit. You've been tweeting a lot lately, l- a lot lately about three trends: e-commerce, fintech, and software. Um, let's maybe just quickly move through these trends, and why don't you tell us what you like about these three things?
1: Well, these three things are making lives uh, simpler and easier for both consumers and companies. I mean, that's the bottom line. If you can find a product or a service which helps people live their lives in a more sort of time efficient and cost efficient manner, you've got a wonderful business. You know, if you look at e-commerce e-commerce is fantastic when you compare that with traditional retail, because as a consumer, you've got, uh, you know, a huge uh, choice. So if you go onto an Amazon or any other email email, or platform or not email sorry e-commerce platform rather if you go to alibaba you go to amazon you go to uh, macara libre or any of those massive platforms uh, you realize that you have a massive sort of choice or variety or range of uh, goods at your disposal so all you have to do is just scroll through and you know the web pages and stuff so you have a massive inventory to select from and usually e-commerce is cheaper than traditional retail because they don't have to worry about the uh, store costs and staffing costs and so forth. And also, uh, it is convenient. So you can actually sit at home or you can be on a bus or a train or a car or whatever, and you can just order through your mobile phone, through the app or, your, or the website, and the stuff comes through to your home or your office, wherever you want to deliver it delivered, within a day or two or three or four days, depending on where you're getting it delivered from. So as a consumer, you have got choice, you've got, uh, you know, convenience, and it is cheaper, what's not to like, you know?
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. I'm with you 100%. What's your If you had to pick one e-commerce company today, uh, what would it be? What's your favorite e-commerce company right now?
1: I would probably go with Sea uh, Limited, based out of Singapore, simply because, you know, it is tackling... Uh, a part of the world, which is very, very under penetrated. You know, the e-commerce penetration in Southeast Asia is tiny. And uh, the company is actually led by Forest Lee, who's a founder and shareholder and a major shareholder in the business. And <clears throat> the company is based out of Singapore, which is not China. Uh, I mean, Singapore is very strict in terms of, you know, it's law and order and everything else. So I have less reservations about uh, C Limited because it's based out of, uh, Singapore, and uh, if you look at the, you know, what they've achieved over the last few years, it has been pretty phenomenal because they've actually beaten Lazada, which is uh, owned by Alibaba at its own game. They are actually the most popular uh, platform, e-commerce platform in several parts of uh, several countries where they operate. So C is pretty exciting. I also like uh, Mercado Libre but that's more because of its new payments division rather than e-commerce. E-commerce has slowed down uh, for that company. But C would be my e-commerce pick. Also, you know, if you look at the US, for example, I quite like Etsy. You know, Etsy has carved a little sort of niche for itself. The business growth has been fantastic over the last few years. You know, it is a great compounding machine. The revenue growth has been north of 30% consistently quarter after quarter and is actually accelerating. Etsy in its Q1 earnings call basically guided for more than 70% year over year revenue growth. So I think these are the sort of uh, source of businesses which excite me, you know, where I can invest in a company and pretty much know that these businesses are going to compound at a very high rate uh, for the foreseeable future. I feel, you know, pretty uh, safe owning those companies. I don't like to own cheap companies which are kind of uh, struggling and people are not sure what the company's going to do from quarter to quarter that's not my cup of
0: tea c limited just checks so many of those boxes right i mean yeah. it has a, a hit video game it's in uh you know emerging markets that are up and coming it has a uh, you know the digital wallet and payment side and it has e-commerce uh you know it really it really checks all those boxes you know talking about stocks like getting meteoric though. Uh yeah, I think I just bought that earlier this year and I think I think I'm almost tripled in it right now. <laughs> you know, like where I'm I'm not used to buying stocks and having them go up like this. What do you think of the valuation of C?
1: I think the valuation after the huge run up is fully valued. I wouldn't say it's a bubble yet, but it's richly valued. Um is going to still probably you know do well because uh, the business growth is very very strong still so investors I think are still going to make decent money from it for the next uh, three or four or five years but would I go and rush in today and put a chunk of money in? see at this level probably not because it's had a parabolic move higher if anything you know I'm looking at either a consolidation in these overvalued uh, sort of richly valued uh, means which have run up a lot or perhaps sideways consolidation for a few months or more realistically a pullback to shake out the new loans Uh, nothing goes up in a straight line you know if you can uh, look at the charts of uh, any of these growth stocks going back you know five ten years you will realize they have big run-ups and then they pull back and they have big run-ups and then they pull back and usually they normally pull back towards the moving averages you know the 30 week the 40 week moving averages that's where the pullbacks normally end and a lot of these names are currently significantly overextended Relative to the moving averages, some of them are hot, you know, 50, 60, 70% above those levels. So we are pretty overstretched and due for either a consolidation or a pullback in my view.
0: Sure, sure. So what about fintech? What what do you like about fintech right now so much?
1: Well, fintech enables e-commerce. It's as simple as that. You know, if people uh, shop more online, which seems to be the case, you know, who doesn't like uh, cheap stuff, convenience and... uh, a wide variety that you can get online, then the only way to make that happen is by fintech. I mean, you cannot buy stuff. uh, If you are in America, you cannot buy stuff in China by issuing checks or sending cash. You're not going to get very far. So fintech is kind of the modern day uh, sort of toll bridge for the uh, global economy. If you want to buy stuff online, you need to have, you know, a PayPal or you need to have Uh, an account or a gateway which is offered by either Stripe or Adyen or somebody like that or, you know, uh, one of the other payment processes and so forth. So I just think that these uh, companies have become more like utilities because, you know, we need these companies whether it's a recession or not. They're not very cyclical. They're pretty robust in terms of their secular growth and unlike utilities, Matt, uh, these companies offer the prospects of very high growth for a very long period of time. You know, utilities are good because they have pretty reasonable, uh, you know, and steady cash flows and they're pretty immune to what's happening in the economy, but they don't have much growth because, you know, people don't need two electricity connections and five telephones at home. But, you know, you have a lot of growth in e-commerce, you have a lot of growth uh, in FinTech, you have a lot of growth in software and they are pretty robust businesses with reasonably steady cash flows. And that's why they've been bid up. And you know, this crisis which we are passing through now, the COVID crisis is a clear example of why these businesses are so robust. You know, you look at the hotel industry, the aviation industry, the banking industry, you know, the industrials and so forth. All these companies are basically screaming murder because they're in so much pain. Whereas if you look at these companies, which you and I own and some of the other people own, they're announcing 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80% revenue growth, and they're guiding for very, very high uh, numbers for the next few quarters. So, you know, there you have the market has basically separated the wheat from the chaff.
0: Right. Uh, absolutely. Uh, look, we can talk about fintech the rest of the show, and I would be happy. Um, <laughs> I know this
1: is an area of your expertise, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, what, give me, give me an example, though, of one company that you really like from fintech.
1: Well, I really like Adium uh, because I think, uh, you know, it is a pure sort of almost a pure play, uh, you know, online uh, FinTech business, and it is predominantly geared towards the enterprises. So it is as safe as they come. I love the management. Uh, I think, you know, Peter Van Doos is actually one of the smartest uh, guys. He's very honest, you know, and, that is the reason why the business uh, is very richly valued. But if you look at the cash flow that this gen- business generates, it is pretty phenomenal. And they've guided for over 30% uh, top line growth for you know the next four or five years, and uh, and a very robust sort of earnings and cash flow growth. And this is the business of the future. You know, as more and more people uh, shop online and buy stuff online, and as you know, the cross-border e-commerce picks up over the following years and decades, this business, along with Stripe, is going to do very well in my view. And I I really like uh, Ajaan. I also used to own PayPal. uh, And I really like that business too. And I know you're a big fan of PayPal.
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: But if you look at the uh, revenue growth of PayPal, the revenue growth is not as impressive as, you know, say like an Ajaan. Ajaan is growing at over 30% year over year. PayPal's growth is sort of high teens, 16, 17, 18%. So I like PayPal too, but I prefer Adium and I'm also curiously waiting for the IPO for Stripe to see at what valuation it comes, you uh, know, public.
0: Yeah, you know, there's really, I mean, there's so many uh, payment gateways, you know, these payment processors, and, and and most of the giants today, the legacy players, they've just cobbled together a bunch of like disparate systems and kind of like cobbled them together. And Adyen is like one of those companies. They just built it from the ground up, and it's one comprehensive, holistic system designed exactly for that, for scale and an online world. And, you know, in my mind, Adyen, Stripe, and Square, um, and probably Braintree from PayPal, are, are, are the four processors that are really built for the modern day world. That's not, the legacy players still have some, uh, I'm not saying they're they're necessarily bad investments, but they weren't built for the world we have today.
1: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I mean, whilst we are discussing FinTech, I've got to give you credit for basically putting Adium on my uh, radio. Oh. I, I, <laughs> oh God, well, I have so doubled my cash very quickly. The problem,
0: the problem is, we we I remember discussing this with you. We back and forth with the research, and the problem was I didn't pull the trigger on it, and you did. So, <laughs> <laughs> you get the credit for it, not me.
1: And I, I mean, Ajin was actually <laughs> on my radar, and then when you sent me that research report several months ago, and I fully understood uh, the technology uh, behind uh, Ajin and what made it so special. And what made the system so cohesive, and you know the stacks so cohesive and interesting, uh, and compelling for the enterprise-grade customers, I pulled the trigger, and you know credit goes to you for sending me that report. Otherwise, I wouldn't. <laughs> well,
0: it's an it's an impressive company, no doubt. Ah, uh, like I couldn't get over the valuation at the time, but uh, but so far I've been very very wrong about that.
1: Yeah, I mean the valuations have been pretty uh, crazy, but if you look at what's happening on the monetary uh, front, uh, Matt, if you look at the interest rates all over the world and the amount of cash which the central banks are, you know, pumping into the system and you do a, you know, discounted cash flow analysis when your risk-free rate is 1%, I mean, crazy things happen and that's what we are seeing because I think the market correctly is now of the view that interest rates in the US are not going to go higher for the foreseeable future and I think interest rates are not gonna go higher for at least three or four years. I'd be very surprised if the Fed actually raises rates before 2023 or 2024 at the earliest. And even when it does raise rates, I think the system would be so sort of uh, leveraged by then that the next uh, monetary tightening cycle is gonna be shallower than the previous one because if you see what's happened since the you know early 80s, uh, if you pull up the long term chart of the Fed funds rate, you will note that you know each peak of the uh, Fed's tightening cycle has been lower than the, subsequent, uh, the previous one, so you know it's been like that, like lower highs and lower lows. So I suspect that in the next uh, round of monetary tightening, whenever we get past COVID and the economy is kind of picking up steam, the Fed funds rate is not going to reach the level it reached in the previous cycle. I think 100 or 200 basis points. Uh, we'll basically kill the golden goose and then we're going to be back to QE and ZERP again for a very long time.
0: No, it, it makes sense. I understand what you're saying. And, uh, and for the record, you have been very right about Addian, And I really wish I had pulled the trigger when we were researching that uh, several months ago. Uh, and then, so one more though, software. Uh, uh-huh. So that that's your last trend that you've been talking about lately, which is, it's, a, it's obviously a broad category. But uh, tell us why you like software.
1: Well, software again is making life simpler for both consumers and companies, and basically, software saves both uh, time and cash for companies. Uh, you know, in this day and age, where everything is going digital, and most business and um, commercial transactions are done via the email or via the computer, uh, it is a no-brainer to me that. Uh, some of the software vendors have become almost like necessities again. Modern-day utilities for these companies. Uh, you try and run a Fortune 500 or you know a, one of those big companies without cyber security and without you know uh, some of the offerings from like an Okta or Datadog or CrowdStrike or ServiceNow or Salesforce, you can't do it. So if I'm you know a CFO of a big business. Or if i'm the senior management of a big business and a software company comes along and says hey you know you can try out our product and our offering and you're going to basically save both time and money and improve your company's uh, productivity your employees are going to become more productive and you're going to streamline your processes and you're going to do well as a business and uh, you know if you add everything together what are you paying us and how much you're going to save in time and costs and everything else, especially with the cloud now. You don't even have to build your own data centers and spend money on hardware. We'll do everything for you. We will look after the software for you. We will upgrade it for you. You don't have to, you know, spend a copious amount of cash on upfront uh, legacy licenses and then, you know, pay us a lot of money every few years for upgrades. And then you know call us and pay us a lot of cash for maintenance. We'll take care of all of that for you. And all you have to do is just pay us a monthly recurring fees and you looked after for the next you know four or five or ten years it's a no-brainer for me you know if i cannot run my business today in today's day and age and say you know what i don't like the internet i don't like you know the computer i'm just gonna do my business the way it was done 20 years ago you know i'll be out of business within five years I can't right. you, that. Right. you so can't if, do business
0: again, the way your father or grandfather did or
1: can't be done can't be done you know you look at how people you know view content these days is youtube is netflix how do people converse with each other these days is through whatsapp how do people bank these days is through their online banking portal everything is going online everything
0: you know how incredible i mean how i mean sorry how incredible is it too i mean like we would have never met a generation ago you know we would have Mm -hmm. never you know uh how many times have we traded investment ideas or or just talked and it's all through, like, you know, it started on Twitter, but we've also talked on WhatsApp and now we're talking on Zoom. all these technological platforms. I mean, how how amazing, uh, you know, they are and how powerful they are.
1: Oh, they are, I mean, they've changed everything. I I mean, if you look now as uh, human beings, we take so many things for granted. I would argue that Google has made everybody more intelligent because without the Google search, most people didn't have a clue about anything. You either had to go through a local library or, you know, look at the uh, dictionary or some sort of directory to get your answer. Now you've got this amazing computer in your hand, i.e. the smartphone, you go to Google, you know, you ask any question you want and within a second you get a pretty reasonable answer. So, you know, Google, I mean, I personally cannot imagine, you know, life without uh, a Google, for example. You know, I use its services in so many different ways throughout the day. When I'm driving, I use Google Maps. I watch my content on YouTube. I search Google multiple times a day to, you know, find answers to questions that I'm looking for. Um, And there's so many things, you know, like Twitter, Facebook, uh, all the advertising is now moving gradually online, you know, Roku. uh, Even if you look at, you know, the car industry, Tesla, Uh, is basically revolutionizing the car industry. You know, they're doing sort of over-the-air software upgrades and everything else. And in the future, I'm convinced, and I'm not so sure about the timing, but at some point in the future, we are gonna get autonomous uh, driving and ride-hailing fleets and all of that? So everything is going to be run by machines and computers, and you have a choice as a business, you know, either, and as an investor, you can either embrace this change or you can get caught, uh, you know, in the past 50 years, uh, prior to 2000, and say, you know, I am not going to change. I will only buy cheap, distressed assets, and of course, you know, your performance is not going to keep up because there is one big difference in the modern day business match versus uh, the companies of the pre-internet era. And I mentioned this once or twice in my Twitter feed a few months ago. Is that you know before the internet the growth margins of the spectacular companies were very low, you know, 20 30%, 40%, maximum 50% if they were lucky. And the growth rates were fairly muted. Uh, you know, a high growth compounder used to grow at maybe, you know, 20%, 25%. And the answer for that is uh, pretty, or the reason for that rather is pretty simple because in the old economy companies, businesses had to set up factories, they had to set up distribution centers, they had to you know first of all make the product at scale so whenever there was demand they couldn't just you know ramp up production overnight and cater to that rising demand so growth was pretty slow and steady and the margins were pretty low but if you look at the current crop of these disruptive businesses whether it's software or e-commerce or you know fintech especially software, the gross margins are super high. You know, 70, 80%, 90% in some cases. So the cost of producing those goods is fairly low. And you have these unheard of growth rates of 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% revenue growth. Heck, Zoom grew at 160% you know, year over year in Q1. So you have these unbelievable mind boggling growth rates simply because their businesses are so scalable and they don't require you know, factories and distribution centers, once the software is coded, that's it. You know, you have the software, you can basically get as many customers as you want, as quickly as you want without having to incur much apart from, you know, sales and marketing costs. Now, if you look at uh, the internet companies, i.e. the e-commerce businesses or FinTech and stuff, they already have the infrastructure in place. So when you have a new customer who wants to sort of open a, for example, a PayPal wallet, PayPal doesn't have to rush out and you know build a new factory or a new distribution center or open a new retail store. It happens almost instantly. So these businesses are very scalable and they're growing very rapidly and the margins are a lot higher. So, you know, that's why the valuations are high. I mean, why should these businesses be cheap given all the attributes that I've described and also the internet is a place where, you know, scale counts a lot. So, you know, it's a first mover advantage. Whoever has the advantage, whoever has the users and the traffic is pretty much a winner-take-all scenario for many of these spaces within the internet, uh, you know, space.
0: Absolutely, you know, that's the one thing I think, like, I mean, so often you'll see people compare like the, just take like the S&P 500 average or median PE ratio and compare it to like the average median PE ratio of the market from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And, and, the, and it, it's higher now. But the I, I always say, like, I mean, what were the large companies back then compared to what they are now? Like you have Microsoft, Alphabet, Facebook, uh, Adobe, Salesforce. I mean, those are some of the largest companies in the world right now. It, what are their margins compared to, in the old days, when you had General Electric, Electric, AT and T, uh, you know, metal benders, you know, like car makers and, and things like that, it, you know, it, it's it's not comparable at all. You know, the no. the margins and the growth rates and, like you said, how easily they can scale. Uh, you know, of course, you know, I mean, the the PE ratios should be a lot higher now.
1: Of course, I mean, and it comes back to my old analogy which i have mentioned quite often you know if you go to a store or or like a auto mall you know a ferrari is going to cost a lot more than a ford it's as simple as that exactly if you if you're getting a a massive compounding beast with a very sort of powerful engine it's not going to come at the cost or the price tag of a little you know ford or a kia motors you know you have to pay pay up for this long-term compounding ability So if you look at any walk of or area of life, you know, people accept the fact that quality doesn't come cheap. You know, if you go to your local tailor, I'm sure you can get a suit made for very little, but if you go to, you know, a Zenia or if you go to an Armani, that costs, because you're paying for quality. And the same thing applies for businesses. Why should a a great compounding machine, a life-changing business, which is going to perhaps alter your life forever financially, why should that be cheap? I mean, can you give me a good answer? Why should it be Uh, cheap? No,
0: no, definitely not, (laughs) no. We're on the same page there. Uh, All right, so one software company. Now? Yeah, what's your favorite software company?
1: I mean, a favorite software company is very different than me sort of recommending a stock now because a lot of the companies have run up a lot already. But if I were to look at everything, you know, in totality, look at the long-term prospects of the business, and also compare that with the current valuation, I would probably go with uh, Alterix because okay. Alterix's valuation is not as nosebleed as some of the other ones. And I think the business slowdown that the company is currently facing is a temporary phenomenon, and they've recently come out with like a more cloud-based offering. Uh, and I think the business has an enviable position in its space. It's clearly a leader in, in what it does. You know, if you look at the Gartner's Magic Quadrant, it's clearly been a leader for a long time. And the management is pretty switched on and I think the time is massive. So given what the company has achieved and what its future prospects look like and the current valuation, I would say Alteryx looks pretty compelling. I do like you know Datadog and CrowdStrike and all of those also, but their valuations are already uh, pretty rich, and you know investors have already caught on to the good business prospects in those names. So, if I would be looking at investing fresh cash today, I would probably put that in Alteryx. In no, a, yeah, it's a
0: great company. It's a great company. Um, I, I, I have you on, and I know you get asked this question constantly but i have to ask you because sometimes people ask me about your hedging process and i'm like man don't ask me (laughs) so you know investors today they have to weigh all these things we've been talking about you have uh economic uncertainty and uh stretched valuations on one hand but you also have uh you know the fed uh you know or fiscal stimulus and zero percent interest rates on the other hand and you have these like great businesses uh that we've been discussing and uh it's hard to weigh them but you you have a secret weapon uh for for managing volatility in your portfolio so why don't if you don't mind because I know you get asked this constantly but why don't you walk us through that process if you don't
1: so, I mean, first of all, it's not so secret anymore because I've, yeah, I've been sweet <laughs> yeah. right. to help others because I know what volatility feels like and you know, it's not fun and crashes happen out of the blue, they come out of the blue, you know, uh, they strike and I'm not smart enough to know when the market is going to tank and when it's go higher, it's going to go higher. In uh, early February, I had no idea that the market was going to plunge 40% in sort of four weeks. And I don't think anybody else did either. And then in early April, nobody would have imagined that the market would basically have this huge rally despite the pandemic. And a lot of these growth names would double or triple. I certainly didn't know. And I'm pretty sure if any of your, uh, you know, listeners or viewers uh, or subscribers asked themselves, honestly, whether they knew this was gonna happen, most of them are gonna say, no, they have no idea. So when I manage my money and when I approach the investment business, I base it on the truth that the market can do whatever it wants to do. And it is beyond any human beings sort of intellectual capacity or prediction of forecasting abilities to know what any stock or any market is going to do tomorrow, next week, next month or next year. You know, we are dealing with unknowns. The future is unknowable. Nobody knows what's gonna happen tomorrow. You know, a war could break out tomorrow. Uh, You know, we could have a serious natural disaster. We could have a fight between two or three major economies. Anything that can go wrong, often or sometimes does go wrong. So for me, you know, rather than positioning my portfolio for the upside, my key emphasis always is to protect the downside. And again, this comes from having lived through the big 60% drawdown that I endured uh, in 2008, 2009, which wasn't very pleasant for me, both in terms of my own sort of confidence and also for my investors who basically had to grit their teeth and basically write it down with me. And I realized then that, you know, running an equity portfolio or a portfolio of any risk asset, without a defense mechanism in place is basically asking for trouble. Because if you have a mechanism which either gets you into cash, or if you are able to hedge or mitigate, you know, these big sharp plunges in the markets, mm-hmm. then that to me at least is, is, wa- is worth its uh, weight in gold. Because if you look at what happened in March, you know, a lot of investors who are invested heavily in these growth lanes were down 40, 50, 60% from the peak to trough drawdown. And my portfolio was down maybe 15, 20%. And then because of the hedges, I got, you know, I booked in some very large profits near the lows in sort of late March, early April. And then I was able to use that cash and invest in these quality companies when they were temporarily beaten down. And that's why my year to date return is uh, pretty insane because i was able to you know leverage on these hedging profits so not only was my drawdown significantly reduced uh, when compared to the broad market it also put cash in my pocket which i was able to reinvest at depressed prices and that's why you know if you take care of your downside and if you use a a uh, 100% uh, price-based system with zero input from macro or some pundits you know, commentary or wizardry, then uh, price is what it is. You know, a price trend is objective. Everybody can see it on the price chart. All you need is to look at the price and look at a few moving averages to see whether we are in an uptrend or a downtrend. And I uh, sort of work on the premise that, you know, the market is pretty efficient most of the time. You know, the market is not uh, a totally insane, uh, dumb mob. You know, you have a pretty smart people who are betting their life savings on certain outcomes. So the market is usually uh, pretty rational. Where it does sort of get unhinged from reality is at uh, emotional extreme. So after you've had a big run up or you've had a big crash, that's when people become extremely emotional. And human beings are emotional, you know, by nature. So that's when you get sort of um, uh, irrationality or insanity creep into the markets, but usually the price is pretty reasonable and rational. So I base my hedging on a 100% price-based system. So when the price is trending higher, I want to be 100% long. I want to basically be positioned in a manner which allows me to benefit from this uptrend because at the end of the day, we all invest for one reason to make money. know we want our portfolio to be bigger a month, two months, three months, six months, five years out from now that's why we all take the risk and invest so if you are able to actually participate in the upside uh, and then when the tide reverses and it does from time to time then if the trend becomes down you know where the price is telling you that you know the price is trending higher and the moving averages are telling you you know that the tide has turned down and the path of least resistance is now down, if somehow you can find a way to protect your gains and preserve your capital and somehow become market neutral or even reduce your market risk during those periods, over time, you are bound to do better than a simple buy and hold strategy, simple maths. So the way I do it now, I have done for the last few years, is I look at the price and I look at the moving averages the five-day and the 10-day EMA and I also look at the trend filter so for me the 150-day moving average exponential moving average is the trend filter so when the price is above the 150-day moving average that for me is a primary uptrend and then the price is trading below the 150-day moving average i.e the price is below the average price over the last 150 days that is a primary downtrend. And that's when I basically put my hedges on. So below the 150-day moving average, uh, that to me is the sort of danger zone. And when the short-term trend, i.e. the five-day, 10-day moving average cross, is also in a negative bearish position, i.e. when the five-day moving average is below the 10-day and the price is below the 150-day moving average, that's what I'm hedged, so I'm totally market neutral. Well, not totally because it is never a perfect hedge, but I'm pretty much market neutral. So if the market tanks under the 150-day moving average, it doesn't affect me so much anymore, and I'm able to sleep well and preserve my cash. And if we do get, you know, these uh, crazy crashes, which do happen moments every few years or once every few decades, then you know, or even better, then you can get extra cash which you can reinvest or, you know, spend do whatever you want with the profits from the hedges. And how, how long have you been doing this now with the hedging? I've been, I've been doing that for a few years now. I mean, I wasn't able to do this when I was managing uh, money for investors in my firm because we didn't have the licenses to short sell and stuff because obviously if you are borrowing, uh, you know, on margin, keeping stocks as collateral and shorting ETFs and futures and stuff that in- introduces the element of leverage which I did not have, uh, you know, the capacity or capability for when I was running my firm. So I used to go into stocks and get out of risky assets and go into treasuries and stuff, uh, when, you know, after 2012 onwards. But since I've been uh, managing my own fund uh, portfolio since 2016, I've been uh, hedging the portfolio.
0: So you've been doing it for a few years and knowing you, I bet you back tested this too. Um, Absolutely. So what, what are beside does it does it add to your return i know it reduces volatility and mm-hmm. it um it just helps you stay invested and stay calm during these economic downturns, which is huge. i mean that's 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 half the battle but does it have you found that it adds to your returns or does it take away a little bit or is it re- uh, like return neutral like what mm-hmm. what have you found about that?
1: If you, uh, I hedge off the IWO which is the uh, Russell 2000 growth uh, ETF um, and I hedge now by shorting that. So if you look at the uh, back-tested results going back to the inception of the IWO or the start of the Russell 2000 growth uh, index, then the cost of annual cost of hedging has been about 0.4% a year. So you would have lost about 0.4% per year for protecting your portfolio. But this does not include the prospect of having the cash after major bear markets and reinvesting that money in stocks when they're cheap. So had you taken the profits from those hedges after the uh, 2002-03 bear market and the crash in 2008-09 and then the plunges in 2015-16 and then the recent uh tank in 2020 you would have actually made money by hedging your portfolio it wouldn't have been cost neutral
0: i remember i i don't think we actually talked about this specifically this last time but in late 2018 uh y- when you were you were explaining this to me and you you said look christmas eve or new year's eve whenever the market hit the bottom you said i, I have this pile of cash right now and you know we we, we when we with well, the trend reversed like a week later, you had this pile of cash ready to ready to deploy.
1: Yeah, and the same thing happened now in March. You know, uh, I was, when I covered my sh- uh, shorts, the hedging uh, positions in uh, March, uh, in late March uh, or so, my, the cash that I had in my account was equivalent to like uh, 35, 40% of my entire account value. And then all these companies were so smashed down and cheap I mean, what, I, what did I do? I just went and bought more shares because I knew that over time they would bounce back. And I didn't know that they would bounce back to much then. But history has shown you know, that if you invest in great companies and if they become temporarily cheap and if the business isn't broken, only the stock is broken temporarily, that is a fantastic opportunity to buy. You know, if you look at some of the best investors of our times, you know, uh, Phil, Fisher, I know you're a big fan of Phil Fisher's teachings, so am I, if you look at Peter Lynch, you know, all those masters and legends, they all said the best time to invest in a world-class business is when it is temporarily cheap in a bear market. And what do investors do? You know, they chase uh, big run-ups after big, uh, you know, bull markets and they they head for the hills when things turn south and that is exactly the opposite of what uh, a person should be doing.
0: Right, right. Uh, I I could talk to you all day, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I have one more question. Um, You know, one thing our seven investing advisors have talked a lot about, uh, both on Twitter and this podcast, is teaching our kids about personal finance and investing. Uh, From our past conversations, I know you're a father that cares deeply for your children. What tips would you give fellow parents about educating their children on financial matters?
1: Well I think uh, the financial education is pretty bad. Uh, I mean I think investing should be taught as a subject in school and also in university. Uh, I think it's insane that people are actually taught to become you know corporate slaves and to be employees and nobody's taught how to handle money. Nobody's taught you know not to borrow from credit cards. Nobody's taught how to use credit cards prudently. Nobody's taught about inflation, how you know, money loses its value over time because of monetary um, inflation. So, most people in the world, I would say over 90% of the world's population, is totally clueless about money and investing. And I think it is a travesty because everybody, you know, earns money. Everybody needs money for survival. Everybody works super hard, or well, most people, unless you're a crook, you know, you work super hard for your money, whether you're a business owner or you're, you're an employee at a firm, and most people don't have a clue of what to do with it. You know, and to make it worse, most people go to, uh, you know, experts and give their life savings to experts whose only money, only goal rather, is to line their pockets at your expense. And they underperform, they actually do worse than the indices, and they come up with all sorts of excuses of why, you know, they've underperformed. So I think teaching, kids about investing is very important. I think, I mean, for me, my kids are now 13 and 10. uh, And a few years ago, I basically told my uh, daughter and son saying, look, you know, you have this pyramid in the world. And at the top of the pyramid, you've got, you know, the small percentage of people who control the businesses, who own the businesses, who set up the plants and factories and who hire people who bring the capital to the table. And then, you know, you've got the majority at the bottom who actually work for these people. And the people at the very top, the business owners, are the wealthiest people in the world. So you have a choice of what you want to do. You know, you can either choose to be an employee or line somebody else's pockets, or you can, you know, take a bit of risk, especially when you're young and set up your own business. And it doesn't matter what you invest in, you know, invest in yourself, have a good idea and go for it. You know, I don't care whether my children become musicians or athletes or, or business owners or, you know, software coders or whatever, it's up to them. But whatever you do decide, you know, invest in yourself and do it and be smart about your money. I mean, my son uh, gets pocket money and so does my daughter. I give them a weekly sort of allowance uh, to spend cash. And they all obviously get you know presents and cash gifts and stuff from relatives and stuff and they see their grandparents and all of that over birthdays and stuff. And my little boy was, you know, for years, he kept his uh, cash in like a home safe so he had like this plastic piggy bank, and he used to, you know, put his money in with a digital one, and put his cash in there and count it and stuff. And I said, you know, look, your money's been sitting here for the last two or three years, and it hasn't really done anything for you; it's still the same. And I showed him my investment account. A few days, I said, look, this is the amount of cash I make when I'm asleep, when the U.S. market is open. You know, on a good day, this is how much I earn. Would you like to do the same? And his eyes lit up. So he says, "Yeah, of course, you know, I'd like to make money." So his first investment was Pinterest. He chose that. That didn't do okay. anything. I said, "Was look, you know, do you want to remain invested in Pinterest, or do you want to sort of get onto or jump onto these other horses which are sort of galloping?" So he said, "Yeah, you know, Pinterest is a rubbish investment. It hasn't done anything. Can you show me what you own?" That so I basically showed him my spreadsheet which i maintain for all the stocks that i have the revenue growth and eps growth and i said you know uh which company would you like to select and he says duh obviously you know i'd go for the triple digit growers so i said why he says well obviously you know if they're growing the fastest the stock's going to go up the graph you know quickest so he basically went with levongo he bought you know uh levongo he put all his money in Levongo. And basically, that was forty dollars uh, a share a few months ago, and now it's over a hundred. He reminds me every single day how smart he is. Yeah,
0: he's a genius I because I haven't put all my money in
1: the Congo. He should be managing your money. <laughs> That's what he says to me every day. He says you are dumb because you own eighteen or nineteen companies. All my cash is in one company because <laughs> You should let me manage your money.
0: Of course, of course. I uh, think it's very
1: important. It's very important to teach your children to Invest in companies. If you don't want to own your own business, you don't have to, you know, as long as you have savings and if you, you know, save more uh, Then, you know, you you save some and you spend less than you actually earn You have, you know, in this wonderful capitalistic system, you have the opportunity to own small pieces of incredible world-beating companies Which can basically provide life-altering returns. So I think, uh, you know, investing should be taught and frankly, I've also thought about this myself. I'm actually go and teach, you know, investing in a local school or university just as a, you know, some volunteer charity work to, you know, share some of my experience and you know, knowledge and help young kids become uh, better decision makers with their cash as they grow older.
0: Uh, that's great. Uh, Peru, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing with us. Peru Suxena, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you again for coming on today. Uh, I'm Matthew Cochran, lead advisor with 7investing, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone.
1: Thank you, much.
0: A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, Listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.